Welcome to the AMM Podcast. I'm Andrew Michael Metter, and today my esteemed guest is Elizabeth Lawrenson. Hey, how's it going? Good. I'm really glad that we could talk today. Liz and I have worked together in several professional environments. We're both DIY musicians, and we both care about social matters. So today we're going to be exploring those topics. So first question, first prompt is when you're listening to music, Let's say there's an artist you like. Do you want them to speak up and use their platform for the things that they are passionate about, say social justice, other issues, or do you feel like they should just shut up and make music? Um, I think that genre has a lot to do with this question um, historically. Um, and I think that genre is beginning to disappear as an entity. And that's kind of a different conversation. But I think genre does have to do with how much artists tend to speak about social justice and social issues because certain genres talk more about those issues in their music and their lyrics in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with whether or not the nature of the genre will determine whether or not those conversations come up naturally in the music but just overall as a whole I want artists to speak their mind or share what they believe but in the instance of like classical musicians who perform music without words I think it gets a little bit more complicated but I still I I personally have a tendency to want to know what musicians and artists think about social Mm. social issues um and if they are reluctant to do to share, I'm always kind of wanting more, pushing for more. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious what you think about genre having to do with that. I think it's super interesting because it's true. When you say genre, the first thing that popped in my mind was rap and hip hop. Yeah, for sure. And then sometimes pop music, but I'm, well... Okay, so I want to throw it back to you. Yeah. What do you mean genre is disappearing? Let's talk about that for a um, second. I think, I think with, with social media technology, music streaming technology, I think genre isn't completely disappearing, but genre, genre bending is happening. And because music isn't just being put out on the radio anymore like it used to be, um, like let's say going back to the 60s and 70s, the way that music was put out was so different. Um, but now, like like we recently saw within the past two years, the genre bending of country and hip hop mm-hmm. um, and synth and country, like diff- different, there's been so many tracks recently, like country pop that have include included a lot of synth sounds that um, when I heard it, I was just like, whoa, that's wild. Why, do, why are they doing that? But also I'm not mad about it because <laughs> I really love synth. Um, but yeah, I think I think that's kind of what I'm what I mean when I say genre is disappearing a little bit. Um, but it's also interesting to think about because there still are outliers for certain types of musicians that are in genres where they wouldn't typically share their political beliefs in their shows or in their lyrics. But then there's people who do it anyway, like the Dixie Chicks, for example. Uh-huh. Um, they're a really good example of people who they they've kind of been really blatant about sharing the, their beliefs despite differences in the genre when maybe other artists don't do that. So it's interesting because it feels like you could look at it as if genre is disappearing or you could look at it as genres are getting more specific. 
Yeah. And there's way more genres that are, are just hybrids, just like a gene pool. Yeah. Um, I think you can look at it both ways. Um, mm-hmm. with, with the way that music is presented to consumers at large, I think that's what makes me feel like it's blending together rather than separating into more mm. specific genres. Because uh-huh. even though there's tendency for certain genres to lean towards certain um, user interfaces like SoundCloud, SoundCloud rap versus <laughs> rap that gets put out on different platforms or um, the types of artists that are more likely to put their music out only on Tidal... Um, mm-hmm. I think that influences the way that artists talk and feel and interact with politics and social justice too, their platform and who their intended audience is. Mm-hmm. But if artists are putting their music out on every platform, every streaming service, I think that contributes to the blending of genres and the disappearance of genres because um, artists are pushing out their music in the same way that everybody else is. Um, And it's taking away part of the individualized experience of their specific genre and their specific music that could have potentially been defined by, like, one radio station or, you know, even just the dissemination of physical albums and, like, the differences that would happen based on genres. Uh Uh-huh. So I think I'm also curious about what an artist believes Mm-hmm. politically, socially. Um, I want to know those things, but I also value having all of the evidence that I can compile and then weighing the claim, weighing the, like with defund the police. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to hear as many different perspectives as possible because I'm not an economist. I'm not an expert on that. So I want to hear as many different perspectives as I can to see, okay, like, how, how is this practically going to happen? And how can we accomplish the goal of it? I think it can also get artists in trouble, like B.O.B. coming out and saying that he's a flat earther. Yeah. And taking a strong stance against that. Uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? Like, are there certain things, like, do you want to know what conspiracy theories artists are into? Or, like, other, other things other than social movements? Or is it just kind of limited to that? Um, well, I think it's interesting that you said that you kind of want to hear as many perspectives as you can on certain issues. Um, that's great, but also um, I think looking towards people who are actually experts on specific things is really important too. Yes, yes. So while I value... Um, while I value the opinions of musicians whose music I really love on certain issues, like, for instance, there's female musicians whose opinions um, I, I really value on sexism, misogyny in the music industry because they've experienced that firsthand and that's something that they deal with and their authorities on that because it's their own experience. But when it comes to things like conspiracy theories... <laughs> um, <laughs> Is anyone an expert on a conspiracy theory? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's the question. Other than maybe the person who created it, and so I don't I don't personally want to hear if artists are super or musicians are super into a conspiracy theory. That's not my my first uh, 
interest. I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not into that for for uh, very long. I might just think it's funny anecdotal information. Um, but there are issues that affect everyone too. So issues like issues like racism, issues like sexism and misogyny, I think affect everybody. Um, equality in general, mm-hmm. in in the music industry sp- specifically. Um, yeah, so it's, I don't know, there's certain topics where I'm like, I don't want to hear what this musician thinks about, I don't know, sometimes even religious issues, if they're not an authority on it, I don't value their opinion as much as someone who has a lot of experience in um, religious, religious, like, contexts or mm-hmm. um, environments where they have put a lot of time into spiritual meditation and, and intentionality. Yeah. And thoughtfulness. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important because I'm not just going to go ask people on the street necessarily what they think for diversity of perspective, but what you said, I think is, is a great point to drill home about listening to experts. Like I, I am a podcast junkie. Like I love the Lex Friedman podcast and I love Joe Rogan and I love hearing what all of their guests have to say about different things. And generally, they do have experts on, on there. But I also do some searching. I'll read papers. Um, musicians. <laughs> I feel like it can be utilitarian in the sense of reinforcing a presidential candidate. Yeah. But not necessarily, like, economic reform. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and also, I think if if you're someone who is an artist or a musician and you're trying to put forth a certain viewpoint, it's really easy to use your platform and to use your influence to direct people towards people who do know more and are experts and use your influence to say, hey, this person, this person led me to what I believe or this person is a really good um, person who spends their whole life or their whole all of their passion is is working towards this cause, whereas I care about this, but my main thing is making music or making art. Um, so that's more towards what I tend to find valuable is mm-hmm. artists who are like, oh, well, I really care about racial justice, and I'm going to post in my Instagram a link to an activist who I think is doing really important work. So you would feel the same way about actors? Like, if you have a favorite actor, do you want to know what they stand for, you know, behind the screen? Yeah. Um, maybe, I, I think because I care about music more than I care about film, <laughs> mm-hmm. which that's just my, my own personal preference and experience. Um, I care less what actors <laughs> think. <laughs> so maybe that's, that's invalidating what I just said. But I would tend towards the same preference. Um, mm-hmm. It's like just because even if even if someone played, say they played a social justice figure, an activist in a movie, that doesn't mean that they also have the authority as the person that they played. So yeah, I would tend towards that that same viewpoint unless they mm-hmm. also have extensive experience in another area that they're speaking from. So I want to I want to posit a scenario to you. Okay. Thinking forward to the future, we're talking about actors speaking up, musicians speaking up. Now let's say, you know, a lot of change happens one-on-one. 
in relationships. It's not necessarily large scale spraying people with ideas by the millions. Well, let's say, imagine a society where you're at a restaurant and the server is gonna talk to you about their political views because they have an audience with you. Now you can do this and you can, you know, before they take your order, they have a three to five minute spiel that they give you, or you could pay $5 and bypass the spiel, bypass that narrative and just get to ordering. So is the question, what do I choose? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, the first answer is that I was raised Dutch and cheap. And so the first answer <laughs> is that I waited out because I want to save $5. But <laughs> the, the actual answer is that, I don't know, we do this every day when we watch a YouTube video. We watch an advertisement to get to the supposedly free media that we want to consume. Mm. Um, and we do this in so many different ways. Um, you know, being stuck in traffic, but more so every time we interact with media, we do this. So I think in the scenario you set up, it seems kind of wild and crazy because it's personalized and it's individualized. Yeah, and it's face-to-face. -face. Yeah, but it does happen all the time, but it happens in more subtle ways that we don't really notice anymore. Um, would it be more or less effective than what already happens to us? I don't know. I think it would kind of be a really wild social experiment to do something like that. And I think people might get really into it and it might create some sort of cult um, restaurant culture <laughs> where people yeah. come to see servers get up on their soapbox and give a mini political delivery and see how effective they are. And it, I think it might actually change people's minds. Hmm. Um, or it might not. It just might be a show. It might become comedy. Um, but it might become kitschy or campy. Yeah. Or... or people might completely bypass the original intent and it might be perceived as completely performance art, which is why I might be into it also because <laughs> I love performance art. Let's take this a step further. We're talking about genres kind of melting together. So I think about the social media algorithm a lot and how it just creates, it's almost a vacuum of outside thought, but most people call it the echo chamber. So you're repeatedly hearing, you click on one video and then all of a sudden all of your suggested videos are this or they're related to it through some complex algorithm and network. So what that made me think of was, let's say that just in an imaginary situation, country artists are all very right-wing. Mm -hmm. And it becomes stereotypical of the genre to hold those political views. And then let's say hip-hop is very liberal, left-wing. And if you enjoy that music, then you tend to have those types of views. So imagine we're in a very binary situation. Do you imagine in the future that that could actually happen and that culture is going that way, where po politics and music are fusing together discriminately? Um, I don't think so. 
I... <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> I'll explain. Don't worry. Um, and the reason, the reason why is that separate from what my idealistic scenario is on how an artist may or may not share their political beliefs, obviously my preference has nothing to do with what is going to happen in the world. And so artists will continue to share their political beliefs and they will continue to define norms in those established categories and genres. And I also think that audiences will continue to um, valorize the opinions of musicians and artists because they are public figures. And so even, even though, like I said before, maybe a musician is not an authority per se on, say, politics because they're not a politician, um, I think there's also something to be said for what happens because a musician is the person who's in front of the microphone. Mm -hmm. And so because of the microphone as an amplification, metaphorically, but also literally an amplification, um, I think it lends to the ease of sharing, sharing your voice. Also, again, metaphorically and literally. So even though some people would prefer to be more subtle about it, other people won't, and other people will use the fact that they're on the stage. They're the one with the mic, not the other guy shouting something at them from below. And at the end of the day, I think that will make a big difference. Um, and I've also heard people talk about that with issues of misogyny in music, too. Like, female mm -hmm. musicians who have had the experience of audience members yelling vulgar things at them, um, harassing them from the audience, um, over, overly sexualizing them, and them saying, hey, I'm the one with the mic, I'm the one on the stage, I get to decide what happens at my performance, mm -hmm. and so you're out of here. Or some people might be more patient and say, so that, like, you can't talk to me that way when you're at my show, and they might say, so you have to respect me if you stay. Mm -hmm. um, do you, on that topic, because I care deeply about this, do you think that there are, there are female artists, or any artist for that matter, we don't have to yeah. focus female specifically, but artists that will endure that for the sake of a fan and ticket sales or merch sales? Yeah, absolutely. I think it happens every day. Less right now because shows are happening less, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been witness to it hundreds, maybe thousands of times because I used to work at a music venue. Um, and so I have my own personal experiences with misogyny and harassment in the music industry in that role, but also have been witness to other performers being harassed, um, disrespected, and then myself as a performer also. Um, and I think sometimes, sometimes you don't do anything or you don't address it because you think maybe that wasn't what I thought it was, or that wasn't that bad because I've experienced much worse and I would rather just get through this show or get through this night, mm. or maybe you just feel tired and you don't want to address it that day. Um, and then other times you feel really angry and worked up about it and you respond maybe the way that you always hope you will which is 
super aggressively back at them and standing up for yourself. Um, but I think it happens a lot. Um, and that happens too with the over-sexualization of performers. Um, yes. It's like a lot of performers, I think, maybe would, if they could consciously make the choice, would remove the aspect of sexuality from their public performances. But because it's such a strong motivator for... It feels like a driving factor. Yeah, it's so important in the way that just the history of music culture with record labels have pushed putting sexuality on the forefront, um, but also it gets people to interact with music in a different way that a lot of the times I don't appreciate. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of artists would, if they had the choice to remove sexuality from their music, might do so. And then would that, would that give more weight and importance to the artists that intentionally talk about sexuality or choose to mm. use it in their music or their performances because I don't have a problem with it being used in performance or in music um, I think there's a place for it and it's valuable it's just sometimes you have to you feel like you have to do it because you don't have a choice I think it's it stands out the most when it when it feels so obvious like I love watching live performances of artists just to see what they'll do mm-hmm. and oftentimes you can see it because they appear totally emotionless but they're doing these these very hyper sexualized dance moves mm-hmm. and it's like okay we've got 10 seconds between the chorus and the bridge and you need to do something because our attention spans are getting shorter and you've got to keep the audience entertained the whole time. So this, like 10 seconds of sexy time in between <laughs> the vocals. Like that's how it feels. And you yeah. can look at it and you can see it scripted like a performance in certain in certain artists. And I would say even performance to performance. Like it's very different watching someone on Radio 1, BBC perform in studio than it is someone on Jimmy Fallon mm-hmm. that's performing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's also, that makes me think about how how uh, musicians use different instruments differently to overtly suggest sexuality. Um, guitar music is, <laughs> is um, it's just known for being more sexual. And I think that, like you were saying, sometimes in a break of a song, there might be sexy dance moves or something. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes there might be a sexy guitar solo. And it might not be sexy in terms of the visual aspect of it at all. But I think orally, um, it serves that function to us as we hear it. Mm-hmm. It serves that wild and sexy function. As it's the wild and that sexy wild sound. wild and sexy function. <laughs> yeah, the wild and sexy function of the guitar solo. Um, and I think that different instruments have different stereotypes, but suggestions mm-hmm. of sexuality, especially in solos. Like brass instruments are directional, so they might be suggestively more phallic. 
Um, string instruments are softer and it's hard to get a loud sound. So they're more feminized generally. Mm-hmm. Um, keyboards are square and big and not usually very sexualized. <laughs> um, but keytars. Keytars are sexualized. Um, I'm trying to think of other good examples. Um, what about drums? Drums, I mean, it's just, it's just loud sounds. If you try to make drum sounds with your voice, it very easily can be sexualized. Um, and it, you know, people associate drums with more, with more primal human instinct. Yes. Um, and the drum is the oldest instrument that exists. So. Hmm. I've never thought of it like that with, um, like the softness and the, I guess the, the delicate touch required for like a violin Mm -hmm. that it would be seen as feminine, but I can easily see that. I think you're right. Yeah. And, and, you know, things, things that in the, in the era where string instruments were, were the newest instrument, um, so coming out of the Baroque period into the classical period, what currently would be considered super femme in terms of dress and style was very masculine. So it's also interesting to think about in that context because in current culture, because of amplification, even though the guitar and the bass are string instruments that are incredibly similar to the violin in the way that they are created, because of amplification, Mm -hmm. the connotations are so much different. So does amplification masculinize sound? You tell me, you're the expert here. I don't know. I think sometimes it does. Technology, I think, as a mediator of sound, is usually referred to as a masculinization of hmm. of a naturally occurring phenomenon like sound. Is that acceptable or does that need to change? I think it's becoming more complicated. So I think it's already changing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in one of my um, graduate classes, um, we just talked with the professor and author, Math- Mac Haygood, and he wrote a really interesting book called Hush. And in that book, he talks about Orphic media coming from Orpheus, the Greek mythology character. And um, Orphic media is media that functions to mediate as sound against sound. So it would be like uh, music that creates soundscapes or in natural environments or sound machines that you use white noise when you go to sleep or noise-canceling headphones would be an example of Orphic media. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the advertisement of Orphic media originally was very feminine in nature, feminizing of sound, because they were trying to get people to buy these products 
to bring into their homes like white noise machines. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to domesticate the sound so that people would bring it into their home. So I think it's also interesting to think about what's the, what are we trying to do with the product of our sound? If we're thinking it, of it that way, maybe we don't want to think of our sound or our music as a product. Maybe we don't want to commodify mm. it, but it's really hard to get out of that mindset in the current state of our world. But I think it's interesting to, to think who is the desired audience of the sound that we're interacting with and the sound that we're producing and how is that sound mediated as it goes from us to the intended listener. And oftentimes the way that the sound is mediated or received is where the gendering of it happens. Um, just like with instruments, you know, the delivery is where the gendering hap happens. And sometimes in the reception too. So how you receive sound, whether it's live with big loud amps or whether it's soft in your earbuds as you're walking in the park or whether you're blasting your music in your car so loud that it shakes somebody's windows, mm -hmm. um, and a plethora of other situations that you could encounter. But I think the mediation or the reception of that sound has so much to do with the way that it could be gendered. It's interesting when you talk about how it's almost like the, the white noise machine had to be non-threatening. Mm -hmm. In quotes, do you feel like, do non-threatening and feminine have to go together? Is, is that an essential pairing? I don't think so. I think that's just the stereotypical pairing. Uh-huh. And I think the reason why advertisers made the choice to market noise machines initially as more domesticated or feminine is because noise as a concept... Um, during the era of the late 1960s and 1970s was, was thought of as everything bad, negative, unnatural, industrial, technological, and therefore bad. Yeah. And I think that presently society's conception of noise has changed a lot. Um, and so it's, it's less so associated noise, I should say is less so associated only with negative connotations or masculinization. But I think technology as a whole is still generally very masculinized. Why do you think that is? I mean, digging deeper than the patriarchy. Yeah. I mean, I think short answer, industry, industrial revolution. Mm-hmm and men going to work and women staying at home. Do you think it's important for us to have these sort of categories, like when we're, when we're talking about masculine and feminine? Because I, I think when we're children, we learn to see the world in a binary sort of way. It's this or this, and that helps us get a grip. It helps us get a grasp and make sense of what we see. Would you advocate for eliminating these, these gender-associated characteristics from technology, from consumer goods? Or do you think that they serve some, some sort of important 
social purpose? I think that they do serve an important social purpose, and that's why we should be, we should be afraid of that specifically. I think the social purpose is, is in a way to control how we behave societally, um, in a capitalist society, um, but also in subcultures like. In Christian subculture, it has a certain function to adhere to the binary of gender roles. Um, I think that uh, as far as gendered associations with non-sentient things like technology, instruments, even um, personal characteristics that people can embody, Mm -hmm. it's really important to me that we make conscious efforts to de-gender those associations and start at a super early age with children so that they don't feel limited by the gendering of objects and situations and society at large. Because I personally have been negatively affected by the masculinization as a stereotype of technology. I wish that I had learned how to record music for myself when I was younger but I was kind of told by everyone except for I think my dad who always encouraged me to learn how to run sound and use photoshop Mm -hmm. and record my own music which I'm super thankful for Um, but I always kind of felt like oh that's a guy thing that's something like but Mm -hmm. I don't feel that way anymore Uh and so anytime that I interact with young girls who feel like they want to learn how to do their own music, I really, really try to encourage them to learn early on how to use music technology. So that's just one example. Um, but, you know, another another example is the gendering of instruments. Kids from a super young age develop gendered associations, and it's sometimes so confusing. Like, where did you get that from? Like, drums is a boy thing. It's mm. like, that's not true. It's absolutely yeah. not true. Um, and so sometimes it just it just aggravates me or sometimes I'm just so puzzled. Like, where did you get that from? Where did you get that idea from? So I want to push back on that. And there's a lot of other gendered norms that I want to push back on because I think they hurt people and and they, they hurt the way that people can express themselves and be... Um, be better artists. I kind of want to talk about uh, protesting a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I've been thinking about the protests in Chattanooga, but also nationally, Black Lives Matter, um, since the pandemic, since the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. Um, and I've been wondering if there's an association between activism and musicians locally but also nationally because it might be confirmation bias that I care about these issues and so therefore I also interact with other musicians who care about these issues mm-hmm. um, but I've also seen a lot of people push on, post on social media and say hey if you're someone who has influence and you are an artist and musician and you're not commenting on these issues um, then something's wrong so that's an interesting side of it, as as well as 
Um, I've also just been wondering, are people participating as musicians or people that normally would participate in the DIY music scene? Are people participating in activism because they are fulfilling a certain type of community role that they normally would perform inside of DIY spaces? So, for example, performing songs that talk about social issues mm -hmm. or um, raising money for nonprofits. Now, I think that that's not the only function that artists serve when they inhabit those DIY spaces, even if they care about those issues. But that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Like, is there, are, are musicians actually, specifically as musicians, more interested in these um, spaces of activism mm. for a reason? Or is that just my confirmation bias? Because I'm a person who cares about it. I think it's interesting. I don't know if genre plays into it necessarily, but like the reason I have this podcast is because I want to share ideas. Yeah. I want to like have an interaction with people about ideas. And that's the same reason that I write music. Like I've got a, a song coming out this month that is addressing my battle with mental health and mental illness. And so, like, I could just draft a Google Doc, put a link to my bio, say, here is this idea, go read it. But there's something about packaging an idea in music that's a lot more, more easily transmissible vehicle yeah. for ideas. And so I do put it in my music, but I do also want to post about it, you know, outside of my music. And I feel like I can get to the point a lot quicker because you can't always understand the lyrics in a song, mm -hmm. especially depending on how it's mixed or if it's more like just the vibe of a song. It's not as easy just to find the lyrics to songs nowadays either, especially if they're not a, a major label artist. I do think musicians in general have something to say to the world. Yeah. And so I think they're maybe they're more emboldened to speak their mind. Than like a plumber. Yeah. Per se. Yeah. So do you think do you think it's more important to embrace subtlety and the way that you do that? Because you tend to put <laughs> you tend to put content in your lyrics or in your music specifically? Or is it is it more of music is what you're good at and that's that's what you're using as an artist, mm. as your medium, and so that's how you share it. Or maybe it's neither of those things. Yeah. Like, I just, I just think in a song, you're limited by rhyme scheme. Rhyme scheme is a demon <laughs> that I regularly fight. I will go into a room and wrestle with a song about rhyme scheme, and I feel so hemmed in by what I can say simply based on the sound of the words that I'm limited to use. Okay, what rhymes mm. with chase? It's it's the limitation that often brings so much to artistic ingenuity, to creativity, and sometimes I am just absolutely confounded by that that aspect of the art. Yeah. But at the same time, I think you find creative ways, you find poetic ways to communicate your idea in those dead ends that you encounter. Sometimes it happens seamlessly, like 
one of the songs that I'm most proud of is Immortals mm -hmm. because of the artists that I got to feature, Prince T and Caleb the Poet, who are in incredible voices in what they stand for, but also in what I say in the song. And I feel like you can listen to the song, but not get what it's about. Because, uh, at least for me, like I realized that I am a, a very visual learner. And my world was changed in music. Like when I could listen to Red Hot Chili Peppers and I could buy their album and I discovered the lyric slip that was inside and I can watch and I could read the lyrics as I was listening to it. Because oftentimes in songs too, the phrasing is cut. Mm -hmm. So a sentence is chopped in half by a couple second break. And so you're like, oh, okay, like I feel the vibe of the song, the groove of the song. But I think the message, it's almost like in the way that consciousness arises from our physical being, the meaning of a song arises. It's not inherently present simply from listening to the song. It yeah. takes a lot of intention. Yeah. So the song performs a different type of function and role because it's a song. I think we would both agree on that. Then, then just a statement would mm -hmm. for many, many reasons. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Um, I think, I think um, I'm just thinking about shows that have been political or not political that I've attended personally and it's funny you know sometimes I'm really moved and intrigued by political performance or um, shows and sometimes I just leave feeling kind of gross and weird <laughs> and I think it's just how it's done but also um, sometimes I feel gross and weird if if a performer talks about something very literally in their lyrics and then they say the exact same thing before or after the song explaining what the song is about and it's like uh-huh yep we got it <laughs> we heard that or um also if if the lyrics are they're like oh this is a really political song and i'm gonna play it and then the lyrics are like oh, i hate my boss and it's like okay <laughs> Or, and that just makes me feel, okay, you wasted my time a little bit. Um, but then there's also a really meaningful, more actual, what I would consider political performances that I've seen, mm -hmm. where people share from their heart, I really care about this issue. This is a song that I really care about because it talks about this issue. Like, I have a friend who wrote a song about... Um, how they don't want borders to exist because it really is is a hurtful thing for them and how they want they're imagining a world in which borders don't exist and how that's the ideal for them and it's a really beautiful song that's an example of a political song that maybe you wouldn't even know it was political if you heard it the first time without an explanation uh-huh but it's also a really moving and powerful message when my friend has shared what that song means as an explanation before or after, because it was very heartfelt and about something real. Um, and then there's also the very blatant, overt, kind of aggressive political performance 
that's more performance art or even, I don't know what you would call it, like really aggressive imagery projected mm. behind a performance or very aggressive uh, fraternizing on the microphone before before a song about something that doesn't seem to connect to the performance at all. So there's a lot of ways that people can do it. We're looking at you, Green Day, and Yoko Ono. <laughs> Shout out to Yoko Ono because I just gave a partial lecture about her in um, the undergraduate course I'm helping, uh, helping <laughs> TA right now. But I don't know what's the best way What's the best way to do it? Or what have been some of your favorite ways that other artists have shared their beliefs or political statements in their mm. performances? So one of my all-time favorite artists is Audio Slave. And that is essentially the band of Rage Against the Machine, which I would say their genre is politics. Mm -hmm. Honestly, mm -hmm. it's so uh, political and it, it's beautiful and it's obstinance towards anything besides subtlety. Yeah. Um, and then Chris Cornell, man, lead singer, that is just super group that got me through high school and a lot of college um, because the music was very visceral, it was poetic, and it was groovy. It was well-made. I think that music at its best should have a very, what do I want to say? It should have a catchy groove that I don't think that music should be necessarily first and foremost about the message. Yeah. Because the medium like, if you want to deliver a message, write a speech. Yeah. But the music should be, you know, defined by whatever musical characteristics or at attributes, like groove, should be catchy. Mm -hmm. You know, not all music needs to be catchy. Um, like, you were talking about noise earlier. A band that my, my dad exposed me to early on was a German noise band mm -hmm. called Einstrusen Neubauten. And it's beautiful and weird, and I didn't know what to make of it at first. So maybe I'm retracting my statement <laughs> about uh, the medium and the music. Um, but I, just, I hear so many songs, especially nowadays in the DIY scene, where um, there's a very low barrier to entry for music to be put on Spotify, mm -hmm. to be released into the world. Um, so many, let me say it kindly so many great messages mm -hmm. on top of poor music yeah what do you think about that um so I don't know I've I've gone to school for music I'm still studying music academically so I I do care about technique I care about mm -hmm. virtuosity I don't tend to like it when artists who have played an instrument that they picked up two months ago implement it into their performance and play it badly. It kind of rubs me the wrong way, mm -hmm. especially if it's, in, it's, it's an instrument that I play. Like, you, I don't think that you can 
you can play the violin very well in less than two years, much less two months, and then implement into performance. And I know it can be done, you know, especially if you I mean, if you're going from viola yeah. to violin, that's much different. But, and, and I do have a special place in my heart for non-traditional ways of using instruments, but mm. it's not my preference. Maybe that's because I'm... <laughs> I'm too classical in my approach, but I value virtuosity. But I don't think it's the end-all, be-all. Um, so that is something sometimes that aggravates me in the DIY culture specifically, is that people put out things that it's almost like sounding bad is part of the image. <laughs> and that's Describe something... Describe your brand. It's like, <laughs> like ironically to. dressing in a way that I think a lot of people might describe as ugly. And maybe that's just my preference, right? Mm -hmm. But people that make music that is intentionally like a virtuosic or a technical, um, it's, it's like rejecting virtuosity as a central tenet of its ethos, that's what I have a problem with. And mm -hmm. I don't think that that happens all the time. In fact, that's probably not even intentional most of the time. But I feel like sometimes I have encountered it where it is, and that really aggravates me because I'm just like, why? It's like, rock and roll, baby. Yeah, I guess so. Stick it to the man. Stick it to all of you that know how to play the violin. <laughs> because also, I, I get it. I'm like, everyone should be able to... <laughs> I, I simultaneously believe that everyone should be able to create a band and be in a band, but also still have this conflict in me when someone plays an instrument mm. really badly as an adult. Kids, you know what? Kids can do whatever they want on stage because they're kids and they should be able to mess up publicly and not have consequences for it the way that adults do. But um, kids should be able to express themselves in many ways that adults should not be allowed to do. <laughs> and I'm kind of saying that as a joke because also people should be able to express themselves how they want. It just might not be my preference. But mm -hmm. too many qualifications. Just that's, that's just one of the things that sometimes frustrates me about DIY culture in general. Um, but I also do think everyone should be able to be in a band and express themselves. And punk is a great example of a genre where people... Yeah. People learn how to play instruments um, very quickly sometimes and not very well and make bands and do really important and beautiful things. And it's not about virtuosity. Virtuosity. It's not about technicality. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's way more about attitude. Yeah. And, and uh, it's, it's a rejection of the system. So can we have high levels of virtuosity and technicality and still reject the system in which it operates. You know, like, can we have high music, high art that still rejects the system or is it all part of the system now? And so that's not possible. So I'm thinking like no effects featuring the London Philharmonic, mm. that sort of thing, where if the songs were transcribed to an orchestra, yeah, it's, I don't know, because 
the orchestra is an institution and funded by sometimes the state, but I'm glad orchestras exist. I think they should exist. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a complicated thing. So back to the idea of musicians influencing political opinions and, you know, awareness. Um, an interesting thing happened today. I don't know if you saw on Twitter. Um, uh, the Postal Service, the band The Postal Service, um, was they created this video pretending to audition different famous people, different famous musicians from other bands or different actors to be in the new the Postal Service, the band. So they kind of tricked people into thinking that they were going to have a revival of the band The Postal Service mm. to get attention so that um, people would vote or register to vote. So it was a political action taken by a technically inactive band that a lot of people love and has a cult following uh -huh. in order to create political involvement and action, which is a pretty smart move. And then a lot of people were mad because, well, mad, mad in a facetious way, like, but the Postal Service, we want the Postal Service to mm -hmm. come back. So that was, that was an interesting, interesting phenomenon that happened today. Um, and, you know, in general, I think there are certain artists who are known for being very blatant and open about their political beliefs. There's some that are kind of in the middle who every once in a while they post something or share something. Maybe they're less disclosing of their actual beliefs, but they'll say stuff like, make sure you register to vote, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then there's people who refuse to take a stance at all or refuse to say anything. And, you know, in some ways, I respect that too because I do think that artists have a choice in that, but it's just not the choice that I make. Um, I'm going to make that my producer tag. Make sure you get out and vote. Yeah. <laughs> Go vote. Make sure you're registered. Although in Tennessee it's already passed and in a lot of states it's already passed but if you still have the chance check check it out see if you're registered make sure you vote if you need an absentee ballot go to your state website and see if you can get one that's the message <laughs> <laughs> um now just make it rhyme and you can put it in a song yeah i don't know that i want to make a song about voting it would make me feel weird. Um, I was going to say, I forgot to say this earlier, but when you were talking about rhyming, um, if anyone is also a musician who's listening and wants to learn more about the troubles of rhyming, there's a really, really good interview with the uh, composer Stephen Sondheim, um, who wrote a lot of musicals. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, one of the great rhyme geniuses, one of the best of all time. And he has a really in interesting interview about the use of rhyme dictionaries and how he developed his rhymes throughout his musicals because he used a lot of rhymes and he felt like he couldn't use the same good rhyme more than once or maybe more than twice or three times throughout mm -hmm. different shows. Mm -hmm. But that's just a side tangent. Great interview. I love Stephen Sondheim, so how to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well... Um, yeah, it's been a great conversation. I don't know if there's anything else you want to address. 
yeah, let's just call it. No pressure. Cool. Liz, thank you for being here. I really value you taking your time to share your perspective, <laughs> share your thoughts with us. Thanks. It's been fun. I appreciate being here. Yeah. So thanks.